We're going to be talking about Jesus, our great high priest. That is more than one message can contain. I've only got one message, so I've got to make it fit. <laughs> and, and by God's grace, I believe we can do some things. We can't cover it exhaustively. But turn, first of all, to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 is not my text. Hebrews chapter 5 is the introduction to my text. Hebrews chapter 5. Put yourself in the place of the readers to the epistle of the Hebrews. And to set the setting for you, this is the way it would have gone down. I believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Not everybody agrees with that. But one thing I think we could prove if we wanted to do so would be to prove, and when I preach through Hebrews, I preach through Hebrews twice in my ministry actually, uh, one thing we were able to see is that the temple sacrifices were still going on they were visible, they could be seen, the temple was still standing, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and so obviously the book of Hebrews had to be written before 70 AD. That would have had to have been the case. So now we have first generation Christians and some second generation Christians. Jewish Christians, many of them in the land, my theory is, and I think it's a credible theory, is that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews with some help and compiling together the things that needed to be said and that he often had preached to the Jews whenever he encountered the Jews, put it all together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to encourage them in the midst of the trials and temptations they were going through. And just think, if you were a Jewish person living in Jerusalem prior to 70 A.D., and the great destruction that was coming, your life would have been a very difficult life. You'd have been excommunicated, basically, from the temple, not allowed to go there anymore. You were raised at the temple. You were raised in all the Jewish traditions. You were raised watching the sacrifices. You were raised watching the priesthood. You were raised watching the high priest. All these things would have been embedded deeply into your soul as a person to kind of help you really think about what it's like. Some of you were raised Roman Catholic. It's not easy to leave the Roman Catholic Church, especially when you have family that are deeply Roman Catholic and will be extremely angry with you for leaving the Roman Catholic Church, maybe even not talk to you any longer, you know. Well, it was all of that and more for these first century Jews. They were excluded from society. They were excluded from jobs. Uh, many of them had to leave in God's providence and, and go to other places because there was nothing for them in Jerusalem any longer. Uh, they were shunned. They were outcasts in just about every way possible. And they were mocked. Well, where's your high priest? We have a high priest. We have a temple service. We have sacrifices. We have all these things, and they're glorious, and they're majestic, and look at the temple. Look how great the temple is. The disciples were impressed with the temple, weren't they? When they told Jesus, you know, look at this great temple that's been built. And Jesus was not impressed. He was impressed that it was his father's house, but he was not impressed. In fact, he had said, I tear down this temple, in three days I'll build it up. Speaking, of course, of the temple of his own body. But 
Here it is. We have all these wonderful things. We have all these majestic things. And you're just a huddled little group meeting together in rooms. Nothing glorious about that. Nothing wonderful about that. You must be crazy. Okay, that's what they were facing. And the writer says, you have a high priest, a real high priest, a great high priest. High priest had to be a man. That goes almost without saying, but it needs to be said. It doesn't go without saying, really. Look at um, Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 4. For, or just verse 1 will do this. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Every Jew would have known that. Every Jew would have known that. Yeah, of course the high priest is a man. It's obvious he's a man, you know. He has to be a man. And he would make sacrifices for his own sins first because he was a sinner. He'd make sacrifices for his own sins first and then he would make sacrifices for the people. Okay, that's just the way it was, you know. So all this is taking place and the writer is going to say, you know what? You've got a better high priest than that one that Rome has installed for you. Remember, Caiaphas was a high priest, wicked man. Annas was a high priest, wicked man. They hated the Messiah. They plotted to destroy Messiah, and they thought they did destroy Messiah, but even that they didn't really believe, because after he was dead, they wanted to put a watch on the tomb so that, quote-unquote, his disciples couldn't take him away. Well... That watched it didn't do a whole lot of good, because after Jesus rose from the dead, what did they say? His disciples took him away. <laughs> you know, pretty pretty terrible watch. You know, but you know better. Okay, he had to be a man. He has to be compassionate and understanding of human weaknesses as a man. You know, we we've been discussing those things in our adult Sunday school the past two weeks, and and um, I think it was a very profitable study trying to understand a little bit more about the, the person of the God-man and the hypostatic union. But verses 2 and 3, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he's required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. Well, Christ understands our weaknesses. Christ sympathizes with us. Uh, but uh, Christ does not have to make a sacrifice for his own sins. He takes our sins upon himself. He's the great high priest. He's the last high priest. There is no other high priest that comes after him that is legitimate. He can intercede because there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. A high priest was a mediator. That's what he was doing, doing that in signs and shadows. There's no biblical record of what the priest would say on the Day of Atonement, but the Mishnah records this, and it might be accurate. The high priest would say, O God, 
I have committed iniquity and transgressed and sinned before thee. I and my house and the children of Aaron, thy holy people. O God, forgive, I pray thee, the iniquities and transgressions and sins which I have committed and transgressed and sinned before thee, I and my house. Every reason to think that is legitimate. And we see that often in the Old Testament scriptures, don't we? Uh, Even Daniel, as he goes before the Lord in prayer, says, I and my father's house have sinned and uh, admits the truth of that. Of course, Jesus Christ, you know, never sinned. Absolutely never sinned. He's a better high priest than any other high priest they had been, and certainly better than the wicked men that had been appointed by Rome and not by God, the providence of God, of course. We even have the words of Caiaphas recorded for us in John chapter 11, talking about why you don't know anything at all. This man must be killed. He must suffer and die so that the whole nation doesn't suffer. And he said that. By the inspiration of God. He meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You can read that later. John 11. This is just introduction, like I say. And he has to be selected. Verse 4. No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. You know, we used to like to say, we probably don't say this too much anymore because um, of our divided country and all the problems we have, but I remember growing up with one of those things that we'd say, you know what, to our kids, you might grow up to be the president someday. And you wouldn't wish that on your kids anymore, would you? (laughs) But that's what we used to say. You might grow up and be president someday. But you know, young Jewish boys never grew up with the aspiration to become the high priest. They couldn't be the high priest. They had to be of the family of Aaron, so there were only a few, a select few that could. You say, well, Jesus Christ wasn't of the family of Aaron. No, very true. High priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. But that's another sermon for another day, is it not? You know. So anyway, no priest can take this honor to himself. Number 16 tells us what happens when Korah tried. Korah tried to take that honor to himself. And uh, God judged him, set himself and his priests uh, to the pit alive. Well, you know, this would have greatly encouraged this little house church if they had thought of turning back to Judaism. And that's what a lot of Hebrews is about, is do not turn back to Judaism. That's what a lot of the warning passages in Hebrews are about, you know, about turning away and turning back, basically talking about going back to your roots, so to speak, that have now been uprooted by Christ, okay? Not tradition, not heritage. Instead, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great equaler and leveler, where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, but in Christ or not in Christ. So the Jews could mock. They could say, look at our glorious temple. Where's yours? Look at our wealth. Where's yours? And there's our high priest. Where's your high priest? And the Christian could rightly say, in the heavens, where he remains for all eternity. Because he can never die again, and Rome can never displace our high priest. 
So there you go. And look at verse 10. You know, Jesus Christ, well, look at verse 9. Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. I knew I got that from somewhere. There it was, written by, no, I'm kidding. Well, our high priest and his sacrifice. The text is Hebrews chapter 9. And it's going to be an overview. Can't go into every detail of every word. Uh, Their sermons are available on Sermon Audio if you wanted to hear them. Uh, But um, we're just going to do an overview of this passage, starting in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse number 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, talking about the tabernacle or the temple area and and, uh, the realities in heaven, and these were copies that were on earth, The copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, talk about blood, but the heavenly sacrifices themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. Did you ever think about that? Christ never went into the holy place that only priests were allowed to go into, and never went into the holy of holies. He didn't. Not on earth, you know. Okay, For Christ did not enter the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, then he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he's appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it's appointed for men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he'll appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And if you notice that, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, uh, echoing the language of Isaiah chapter 3, which also talks about the many, not the every single person. That's just biblical language. If we don't like that, we have to get mad at the Bible, not at the messenger. Okay. So the reality of the one-time sacrifice. The tabernacle on earth and all that went along with the Mosaic Covenant were meant to point ahead to the reality we enjoy in the New Covenant. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, were purified with blood. And as you read through your Bible, and you know, I, I know it can be onerous to read through the Bible in a year. You know, that, that can be hard. You know, and uh, so why don't you read through the Bible in two years? Okay, read through the Bible. Read the Bible. Know the whole Bible. You know, uh, and and you'll be better off for it. You'll be glad you did it. Year after year after year after year, you'll store up so much biblical knowledge. You won't know everything. In fact, you'll start to realize that you don't know a whole lot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a whole lot yet to know. But uh, you know. It'll be, it'll be good for you. So take that as a challenge if you would. You know, If you can't do it in two years, do it in three. Just do it. You'll be glad that you did. That was not sponsored by Nike. Okay? <laughs> Just do it though. Okay. They were purified by blood. By the sprinkling of blood. By the blood of, of goats and sheep and cows and, and you know, bulls and Christ's blood is the all-sufficient sacrifice for true purification. The blood of Christ was literally shed, but his 
figuratively sprinkled upon his people. The spiritual realities for his people. We see that in verse 23. We find, um, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, the sacrifice of Christ himself. And fulfilled the eternal plan of God in the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. The sacrifice of Christ was once for all time. And that's where people misread. Sacrifice of Christ once for all. It means once for all time. Okay, that, that's what the sacrifice means. And the true presence of God, with God for all eternity, purification or sanctification, you know, and our sanctification. So we must never conflate justification and sanctification. They're not the same thing. Justification happens outside of ourselves. It's God declaring us to be righteous. It has nothing to do with works. It has everything to do with the works of Christ. That's what justification is. He wins for us salvation, and we're justified. And our catechism says, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. But there's two kinds of sanctification. Christian friend, you're living through two kinds of sanctification right now. There's definitive or positional sanctification. It's our being set apart by God. A present reality. We don't feel it, but it's as real as anything can be. It's actually from God. Set apart is the literal definition of the word. And things in the Old Covenant were sanctified for a holy use, and we're sanctified for a holy use. We're Christians. We're in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we're cleansed and fully acceptable to the Father. But then there's progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. It's God's work in our life today while we're on earth. We're called to holiness. We've been studying that in our men's and women's breakfast that we have, which we won't have in December, just by the way, we'll start again in January. But we've been studying the pursuit of holiness. As a Christian, you should desire to be holy. You say, well, I can never be perfectly holy. Progressive sanctification growing in grace, growing in the knowledge of God, coming before him when you do sin and confessing your sin, and then, you know, getting up off your knees and just striving again, striving and working, and it's what we do in this pilgrim pathway. Progressive sanctification is God's work in our life today as we're on earth, we're called to holiness, and the catechism says this, sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God. That's definitive or, or positional sanctification, you know, whereby we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. That's the doctrine. We ought to keep that constantly in front of our mind. You know, as you talk about the copies of the things in the heavens. You know, heaven is the reality and the shadow was on earth. 
Now, why do you think about that? You know, heaven is the reality. And the shadow and the picture is being played out on earth in a tabernacle and in a temple. And now we don't have a tabernacle. We don't have a temple. Why? Because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. And then the true temple, you know, in, in how, however it's going to be, of course, in heaven. And, you know, it's an idea of substance. Think about it this way. Okay. You cast a shadow. What casts a shadow? Something that's real. You don't have a shadow, phantom shadows. Clouds could even cast shadows. Yes, they can. You know, but they're real. You cast a shadow. I'm casting a shadow right now, kind of, probably somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) We cast shadows because we have substance. The reason the tabernacle and the temple were important is because they were shadows of a substance. And Jesus Christ is the great temple and the great high priest and the great sacrifice. He's everything, everything that we need. And he's in the presence of God for us. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands. He didn't need to. They're copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. There's some beautiful prepositional phrases in the Bible. In Christ is a wonderful prepositional phrase. For us is another tremendous prepositional phrase. He's our advocate. The parakletos, literally, our helper. This is the term, you know, paraclete's a familiar term to us. We usually think of the Holy Spirit. But here, it's being used of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know. The comforter, the helper, a broad word. He pleads our cause in heaven for us. He's like a lawyer advocating for us. Okay. He's our intercessor. Propitiation carries that idea. It was the figurative role of the high priest in the Old Testament. And it's the reality in the New Covenant. And you know the wonderful thing about the New Covenant? It extends back into the Old Covenant. They were saved by hope. They were saved by the work that Christ would perform without fail. We all confess that Jesus Christ never sinned. We confess that. It's true. He never sinned. He's perfect. Had he sinned, he would have failed. If he would have failed, well, I can't even imagine what would have happened next because he's a God-man. It's conceivably possible, had he failed, that the universe itself would have collapsed and, and ceased to exist as we know it and we'd all be cast into hell forever, you know. Uh, that, that's about the only thing I can think of had Christ failed in the work that he was doing. But Christ is our propitiation. The wrath of God has been turned away and God's favor is now with us. You know. He's the one sacrifice for all time. And I won't read the verses for you, but 25 through 28 tell us that and, and you can read that. And that's why the Roman Catholic Mass is so wrong they're continually believing by faith, and they have to believe it by faith because um, uh, a, a wafer cannot be the literal body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's another great error that they have, thinking that the, the wafer is the literal body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the blood is the literal blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great error. The, the great error would simply be that Christ's body is not everywhere. 
and his blood is not everywhere. He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. But pieces of him do not exist throughout the universe. No. You know, in spirit, he is. He's the God man. As God, he has all the attributes of God. But as man, he's like us, without sin. Without sin. Well, verse 28 actually is a very hopeful verse. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. That's our great high priest. And that's our great blessed hope. And in our Revelation series that we'll pick up uh, in December... Uh, we will actually be talking about um, uh, the great blessed hope that way. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come. Remember what I said about a shadow? There has to be a substance to make a shadow. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. That's one of the verses, by the way, that kind of proves the temple's still standing. Okay. Because it's still going on. And this little huddled man in their little house church, um, you know, being mocked by the others. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And we know that's true because they had to do it again and again and again. Every year, they were reminded of their sin. Every year, they were condemned by the law. Every year, the law demanded they remember their guilt. The sacrifices themselves said guilty, guilty, guilty. Sacrifices were a constant reminder. Now we have the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a bloodless sacrifice. It's not a bodily sacrifice, it's a spiritual sacrifice. You can look at our confession later and you can see that it talks about Christ being spiritually present with us as we partake of the Lord's Supper. It's not just a memorial. It's not a dead memorial. It's a means of grace. It strengthens us and Christ is with us when we come to his feast. But it's not a remembrance of our sins. It's a remembrance of him. It's a remembrance of sin forgiven. It's a remembrance of all that he's done for us and is doing and will do for us. It's more than a memory. It is that. It is. But it's more than a memory. It's a means of grace to build us up in the faith. And we must partake in holy reverence and awe. And we should come having confessed our sins in progressive sanctification. But come. You know, there was a, Spurgeon tells the story. Spurgeon's a great illustrator. I'm not a great illustrator. I know that. Spurgeon's a great illustrator. And he tells the story of a lady in his congregation that would not partake of communion. You know, and he knew why. I don't know if he'd talked to her, but he knew why. Because she felt so unworthy, 
She felt so unclean. She felt so dirty. Even though she was a Christian, she would not partake of communion. And so finally, it came to her. She passed it by again, and he stopped and said, Woman, take. It's for sinners. Ah. We need to remember that. We really need to remember that. It's not for sinners that are living in their sin and content and happy and glad to be there. It's for sinners that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And it's his feast. And he gives it to us. And he wants us to partake in it. He wants us to partake. Next Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, we'll be here. Partaking of communion. I hope that you'll be here to partake in communion. We do it once a month on purpose because I know some of you live so far away. Some of you, it's very difficult for you to be here morning and evening, although morning and evening is, is very much preferred. you know. But that's primarily the reason that we do it at 10 o'clock, so that you can be here. So as your pastor, let me say, be here. <laughs> okay. Be here. It's for you. <laughs> okay. Well, what about examining ourselves? Aren't we supposed to do that? Yeah, yes, we are. We are to examine ourselves. It just means taking things seriously and keeping short accounts with God. And we're to discern the Lord's body. Yes, we are. And we are to see that we're in Christ and have been cleansed from our sins and that we're part of him and he gave himself for us. This is discerning the Lord's body. And uh, later on, don't do it now, you can read London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 30. It's a really great chapter. Talks about these things. Animal sacrifices could never take away sin. Animal sacrifices did not take away sin. They were never intended to take away sin. They were shadows. The reality substance is Christ. The perfect sacrifice, verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come. In the volume of the book, it's written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay. Just say once. You don't even have to say for all. Once. That's what it means. You know, the book of Hebrews, I believe, is a sermon. I believe it was a written sermon. I believe it was a distillation of the things that Paul taught in Acts 28 as the Jews came into his house arrest and freely spoke to them about the Lord Jesus Christ and the Old Testament and all things that happened. Those that were in Paul's presence uh, mocked and rebuked, refused to believe. Okay. So he wrote it for the believing Jews. He wrote it as a sermon. And you notice what he just did? Verses 5 through 7 come exactly from the Old Testament. And then uh, he actually, it's from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, if you wanted to look there. You don't need to do that right now. But Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 is what is quoted. And then he goes on and exposits it, what it means. That's a sermon. That's what a sermon is. We preach this, we give the word, then we give what the word means and what the word is saying and make applications and um, 
and help us to understand the scriptures better. In the incarnation, Christ had a true body and a reasonable soul. A body you prepared for me, is what it said. A body without the spirit is dead. Without our souls, we're not alive. We have bodies that will die. My wife is back for a funeral. That's why she's not here today. Went to Tucson for a funeral. And then, shock upon shock, there'll be another funeral coming up. Um, It won't be directly in our family. But Cassie's kind of dead. Not official dead, but kind of dead. That lives in Tucson with Cassie's mom. Passed away. Thursday after Thanksgiving. He was at Thanksgiving. He was there. Next day, he's gone. And he's about my age. And he had a backache. Then my back was starting to hurt. (laughs) Being a hypochondriac, I think, oh no. (laughs) No, but in all honesty, it's tragic. You know, his name was Mike, and he passed away. Don't know the state of his soul, won't even try to talk about that. Just say, you know, there's a reality of heaven and a reality of hell. And he was a man that was an enjoyable man to know, an enjoyable man to meet. But now he's gone that quickly. Could happen to any one of us. Could happen to anyone. And it's going to happen to every one of us. Unless the Lord returns. It's going to happen. That's what it is. The body without the spirit is dead. We have bodies that will die. But we have a soul that will never die. When Christ came into the world, he had a true human nature He was body and soul. He's also God, of course. He offered his soul and body to God. His body died on the cross. His soul went to God. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Commit my spirit. To the thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But Isaiah 53 talks about the time the timing of it all. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul. God will see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Well, that's, Right there. We saw that already in Hebrews, didn't we? For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. That's the great work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me conclude with just a a few points of application, you know. Blood sacrifice teaches us at least five things. Blood sacrifice teaches us at least five things. Number one, sin is defiling. The sinner on his own is not fit to approach a holy God. And that's what the Jews were supposed to learn by the temple. They weren't supposed to be enraptured 
and all brought into all the wonder and, and glory of it all. They were supposed to remember that they're sinners and I'm a holy God and only the pure can come before me. Constant themes in the Old Testament. And second of all, the sacrifice of Christ cleanses the sinner from all their sin because you are a sinner and, and so am I. But we're sinners. You are a sinner. And there's only two possible reactions well, there's a few, a few possible reactions to that statement. So what? Everybody's a sinner. Heard that one before. Or, who are you to call me a sinner? Aggressive. Or, yeah, I am a sinner, but there's a whole lot of people a whole lot worse than I am. This is the way lost people think. But what's the correct response? I'm a sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I and myself constantly fall short of the glory of God. Do you believe that if you got what you deserved, you'd go to hell? It's true. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Third thing, blood sacrifice teach us, that the death of Christ really deals with sin and really does put it away forever. He takes away the earthly sacrifices that do not atone so he can offer the once for all sacrifice that does atone, his own blood. Fourth of all, our salvation came at an, in an unimaginable price. Unimaginable. Because salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. People will say, well, you know what? You could murder somebody and then turn around in prison on death row and ask the Lord to save you, and he would. What kind of a God is that? That's cheap. Salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh. The eternal Son of God gave his life. He took all the sins of all of his people upon himself so he could redeem them. Salvation is free for you and me. It absolutely is. But it's by grace alone, through faith alone. And it wasn't free for Christ. He paid the ultimate price. And did so with his eyes wide open, knowing that what he was going to do. We offer ourselves to God. Hebrews 12.1 tells us that. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, or some would translate spiritual worship. It's rich language. We offer ourselves to God, but our sacrifice is a living one, holy and pleasing to God, called a total commitment. It's not only total, but it's also logical. It's logical. In the light of what Christ has done for us, total commitment to him is the only rational response we should have. Anything less is irrational. Anything less is sub-Christian. We fail in this. We all do. Thank God for an advocate. Can you imagine? Jesus Christ standing before his father, 
and advocating for them. No, I love them. I paid for their salvation. They're mine. They make up the crown that I'll receive. They're my brethren. And I love them. It's an amazing thing. With him, we have everything. Everything we need for all eternity. Without him, I don't care what you have. You're going to lose it all. You're going to lose it all eternally. And suffer God's wrath forever. So I just ask you in the reality of this. Do you know the only savior of sinners? The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look to him in prayer. Father we've talked about. The root issues of all eternity. We've talked about our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, there is life. In him, there is eternal life. In him, there's freedom. In him, there is grace. In him, there's all that we need. We can so easily focus on the material things that we think that we need. Father, if we have Christ... We really do have all that we need. We thank you for that. Lord, we could drive up and, and see mansions on earth. And we wouldn't judge the people that live in them. For Christians can certainly live in a mansion. And we'd be glad if they did. But Lord, what if the only thing we had was a mansion and a big car? The Bible never tells us that God wants us to be rich. God wants us to see who Jesus Christ is and the price that he paid for us and to glorify him. That's what God wants. That's what God demands. That's what God says. Father, let us be that kind of a people. We live in a material world. Yes, we do. We have material needs. Yes, we do. We have things that we just must do. And you've admitted that when you've given us six days to work and, and do everything we need to do and then one day set apart for you. We look forward to that eternal Sabbath day when all we'll have and all we'll need are not material things at all, but you. That's the great glory that awaits us, Father. We thank you for Jesus Christ the Lord, our great high priest. In his name we pray, amen.